Hey, Dr. Bernard here. I want to preface this episode by saying that there is a recommended maximum daily amount of caffeine that you should be intaking. Um, don't take any more than this. And so 400 milligrams of caffeine is like around four cups of coffee. If you read the nutrition facts label, you'll see that some energy drinks have like 160 milligrams of caffeine per can. I personally don't go over 200 milligrams daily myself. And I know for some people, if they drink any caffeine past a certain time of day, they won't be able to sleep. And there's multiple reasons for that. And so after this message from the sponsor, we'll get on with the episode. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I recently reported a 21-year-old man, BB, who drank two gallons of coffee in three hours. The amount of caffeine in this is roughly seven grams. The maximum amount in healthy adults cited by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is 0.4 grams per day. So BB consumed more than 16 times the highest recommended daily dose, and that's going to cause problems. Caffeine is used by more than 90% of adults in the United States. In 2013, it was reported that the average consumption was over 200 milligrams per day, which is about two cups of coffee or five cans of soft drink. Because it's so widely available and widely used, misuse commonly happens both intentionally and unintentionally. Caffeine is a stimulant, meaning that it promotes activity in the body. Because it's naturally occurring, it has structure similar to chemicals that you'd find in the body. Caffeine is a methylxanthine. Xanthine is a purine base. So what's a purine? Well, it's a base for adenine and guanine, which are the A and G that you see in DNA sequences. If you extend adenine, you can get adenosine, which is the A in ATP. ATP is the chemical that's the primary energy source in cells that's produced by the mitochondria. So these chemicals are all familiar in the naturally occurring world, and derivatives are all found in the human body. But exactly what does caffeine do? How does it function? At normal doses like one to two cups of coffee, caffeine does what other stimulants do. It increases wakefulness and alertness. It does this by blocking two things in the brain. The first is something called gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA. This is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain, and it blocks brain signals and decreases activity of the nervous system by impeding impulses between nerve cells. Biologically, you don't want uninhibited signal transmission happening in the brain. You need some level of control, so GABA acts as a check. So if GABA is blocked by caffeine, then you decrease the inhibitory tone of the brain, causing an increase in stimulation. The second thing caffeine appears to block is adenosine. Interestingly, caffeine's chemical structure is similar to adenosine, so it happens to bind to those receptors too. Adenosine in the brain is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, so blocking inhibition will lead to stimulation. So patient BB needed to stay awake to cram for his final. I was a student before. I couldn't pull all-nighters if I tried, and I don't recommend them, and I definitely couldn't do them now if I wanted to. But BB's strategy was to drink coffee to keep himself awake because he thought more study time meant better chances of scoring higher on the exam. So after one pot of coffee, he had another, and another, and another, until it came out to be two gallons of coffee in less than three hours. 
In the case of caffeine, large amounts will lead to sympathomimetic toxidrome. That is a toxic syndrome that mimics the activity of the sympathetic nervous system. Remember that sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight mechanism, and that parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest mechanism. Sympathomimetic toxidrome is characterized by an overabundance of stimulatory neurotransmitters. In the case of caffeine, we're looking at a catecholamine crisis. So in large doses, we're going to have psychotropic responses, including anxiety, delusion, diaphoresis, which is excessive sweating, hyperreflexia, and madriasis, or pupil dilation. All of these were happening in patient BB before he presented to the emergency room. Because an excess of caffeine would block most inhibitory processes in the brain, high amounts led to the patient's seizure. But caffeinism isn't just limited to central nervous system manifestations. Caffeine is known to induce catecholamine release. In several animal models, it appears that epinephrine or adrenaline release is mediated by calcium in the adrenal gland. Epinephrine is a hormone. Norepinephrine is a neurotransmitter. Epinephrine is a non-selective adrenergic agonist, so it hits alpha and beta subtypes without issue. What happens when alpha adrenergic receptors are agonized? You get an inhibition of insulin secretion by the pancreas. You get a stimulation of glycogenolysis in the liver and the muscle. That is a breaking down of sugar stores in those tissues. Alpha adrenergic stimulation also causes glycolysis in the muscle. This makes sense because epinephrine is released in fight or flight situations and you want as much glucose available in the blood so that the muscle tissue can use it. Now how about beta adrenergic stimulation? You get increased glucagon secretion by the pancreas, which is the hormone that's opposite of insulin. If insulin shifts materials into the cells, glucagon does the opposite. Beta stimulation also increases lipolysis in adipose tissue. So overall, adrenergic stimulation increases the availability of glucose and fatty acids in the blood, which supports the fight or flight model of the sympathetic nervous system. But caffeine isn't finished here. In large doses, we also find that caffeine inhibits phosphodiesterase, which breaks down cyclic adenosine monophosphate. There's the adenosine again. Cyclic AMP is a second messenger that's used in the amplification of adrenaline. If the enzyme that breaks down cyclic AMP is inhibited, then it means that the amplification of adrenaline intensifies, feeding the cycle forward. It doesn't help that the major metabolites of caffeine are also still biologically active as well. So what does this do to the other parts of the body? After the central nervous system, think of caffeine as affecting all kinds of muscle tissue in the body. We already know that skeletal muscle is affected by tremors and seizures. Smooth muscle of the GI tract are going to be affected as shown by vomiting, abdominal cramping, and hyperactive bowel sounds. And cardiac muscle will be affected by widened pulse pressure, sinus tachycardia, dysrhythmias, and hypotension. So patient BB presented to the emergency room in the middle of the night. He just had a series of seizures. His mother had no idea what happened to him. He couldn't speak coherently after his seizures, so doctors didn't immediately know what happened either. In a previously healthy 20-year-old college student, unconscious and postictal state could be a lot of things. No smell of alcohol or any kinds of smoke, so that's out. Pupils were dilated, tachycardia, hyperthermia, tachypnea. There's the signs of a stimulant. Patient BB also had several ventricular tachycardia arrests happen. He was only stabilized after administration of lidocaine and sodium bicarbonate. The patient also had high creatine kinase levels and profound hypokalemia. 
the latter being characteristic of caffeine toxicity, likely due to excess catecholamine release, as epinephrine can cause an intracellular shift, and the former indicating rhabdomyolysis, which brings us back to the muscles. Hypokalemia can cause rhabdomyolysis. Sodium enters the cell to initiate a muscle contraction. Calcium enters to commit to a contraction. Potassium is pumped out of the cell to maintain polarity temporarily. Excess potassium extracellularly can promote muscle relaxation, so low potassium levels would promote contraction. So you can see that caffeine toxicity is caused by 1. Inhibition of inhibitory neurotransmitters GABA and adenosine. 2. Direct catecholamine release. And 3. Phosphodiesterase inhibition, amplifying the effect of catecholamines. Both the CNS and catecholamines directly affect muscle tissue, which at the most severe cases are going to affect the heart, and they can affect the skeletal muscles, causing kidney damage. For the most part, treatment is supportive care. Most fatalities from caffeine come from cardiac dysrhythmias. If epinephrine agonizes adrenergic receptors, then we could give beta blockers to block the effect on beta subtypes. Some people have noted that there could, hypothetically speaking, be unopposed alpha stimulation if beta is blocked, which would lead to peripheral vessels constricting and causing a hypertensive crisis. But that doesn't seem like it happens in practice. In some cases, pressors have to be given to help compensate for hypotension. Caffeine toxicity causes hypotension because of beta agonism from epinephrine, and that causes vasodilation, and volume depletion happens from urination and excessive sweating that happens in this sympathomimetic toxidrome. Replenish potassium for hypokalemia. Give benzodiazepine for seizure, which modulates the action of GABA, the inhibitory neurotransmitter. Rehydrate for rhabdomyolysis, and the metabolic abnormalities often correct with this supportive care. Now I want to bring up a paper that was published in late spring 2020 in the CHEST journal. In it, they described high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy for the treatment of caffeine toxicity. In it was a 33-year-old woman who presented to the emergency room after consuming pure caffeine powder. After she had a seizure, she had a series of cardiac arrests that alternated between shockable rhythms and pulseless electrical activity, kind of like our patient BB. When she was resuscitated 90 minutes later, it didn't seem like she was okay. Her heartbeat was almost unnoticeable. In a last-ditch effort to treat her, the doctors tried high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy. They loaded her up with one unit per kilogram body weight insulin dose along with 20 grams of glucose. Immediately, there was a sudden rise in her blood pressure. She started moving her limbs. Her acidosis started correcting. Doctors moved her into the intensive care unit where they started giving her half a unit of insulin per kilogram body weight per hour with more dextrose and potassium. And after three days, they were able to wean her off of therapy because she made a full neurologic recovery and she was discharged. She couldn't remember even having taken the caffeine just a few days earlier. So how could this patient, who is maybe just a few minutes away from expiration, able to come back and make a full recovery? Well. It's very possible that she was going to make a spontaneous recovery in the first place, although that might not really be likely. There could be a mechanism for how this high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy works. Do you remember the alpha and beta adrenergic stimulation, where the effects of those were to suppress insulin and encourage glycolysis and glycogenolysis, all with the intent of increasing blood glucose and fatty acids? Well, 
It looks like insulin could force the heart muscle to metabolize glucose instead of free fatty acids. This is interesting to me that it was included in the paper because there have been use cases of intralipid emulsion being used to treat caffeine toxicity too. Part of lipid emulsion therapy is the theory that if a medicine is lipophilic, that is, it dissolves easily in fat, then infusing fat into the blood can pull the medicine away from critical tissue into the bulk flow of the lipid emulsion. But some experiments of lipid emulsion therapy have shown that increases in fatty acids in the blood have a positive inotropy associated with it, which could be a secondary effect of how ILE can treat caffeine toxicity. But that would maybe contradict the hypothesis that high-dose insulin forces the myocardium to use glucose instead of free fatty acids. I don't think we really know 100% what's going on here. It's possible that insulin has the potential to cause a Le Chatelier principle-like effect. That is, if excess catecholamine release suppresses insulin, that shifting the reaction the other way by giving lots of insulin could counteract that effect. While the insulin isn't directly counteracting the caffeine as an antidote would, it looks like in this N of 1 case report that it may have had some effect on cardiac output, neurologic status, and acid-base imbalance that resulted from the caffeine toxicity. Glucose, insulin, potassium infusions have had some effect on other low cardiac output states like septic shock and heart failure, but again, these are case reports and may indicate that there are other things happening in the physiology that we might not be aware of today in 2020. Caffeine toxicity isn't fun. The chemical is natural. With anything that's a chemical, be careful. With anything that's natural, be careful. The toxicity is caused by antagonizing inhibitory neurotransmitters, direct catecholamine release, and PDE inhibition. Things that happen in large doses, but not necessarily happen at regular therapeutic doses that are under the daily recommended maximum amount. We don't directly test for caffeine levels in the blood because most hospitals don't do that. It takes too long, it's expensive, and it's not reliable. Hypokalemia is a common feature in addition to the sympathomimetic toxidrome that comes with this. Co-ingestion of other substances can also happen as well. And with caffeine being so widely available and used, it's always something that you should have in mind. Thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourself and be well.